Hey everybody, thanks for joining us at the Central and Janesville podcast. Please remember to check us out on centraljanesville.com throughout the week. We're excited for wherever God's got you at right now, and we hope this message brings you a little closer. Thanks. I, uh, I like to go play, I like to travel, but when I fly, I have a, um, a routine. When I get in an airplane, um, the routine is this, sit down as quickly as possible and put in headphones. What, what's, what signal am I sending? Don't talk to me. I don't want, I know, okay, I know. I'm a terrible human being. I'm a terrible pastor because, you know, I'm supposed to, yeah, I, I get it. I'm an off, but here's the thing. I don't want to, I just don't want to have the conversation because all the conversations go the same way. It starts with, uh, you, know, uh, well, you know, where are you flying? Where are you, to, where, you know, where are you going to? Where are you coming from? That kind of thing. And then inevitably it ends up with the question, what do you do? Right? That question is coming, and I know it's coming. And here's what I got to tell you. I know, I know that I should be proud that I'm a pastor, but here's the problem. The moment that I say I'm a pastor, everything gets awkward. Because the first thing, I can see it in their eyes, the first thing they're thinking is, did I cuss since I've talked to this guy? Like, that's the first thing that runs through their mind. And then, and then you know, depending on what they think, what they believe about God or church or or uh, Christians or the idiots they see on TV pretending to be followers of Jesus, um, you know, like, be, de- depending on what they think about all those things, I, I don't know what the next half hour is going to look like because it'll either turn into a, an impromptu counseling session or it's my job to defend all the idiot, bigoted things that they've seen Christians do, right? I hate conversations on the airplane because it's always, what do you do? And, and the reality is, our, our, culture, our culture says you are what you do. You are what you do. I, I, um, it's not just pastors. I know that's true across the board. The truth is, um, I, could, I could say a, pro, a, a profession, and all of you guys will have images that come into your mind about the kind of person who is in that profession. If I say a teacher, everybody's got the kind of person that comes into their mind who's a, who's a teacher. Maybe you know what they look like or what kind of a person they are. Uh, if I say a business owner, entrepreneur kind of a person, totally different person, right? Totally different person, and, but you know what kind of person we're talking about. Uh, if I were to say a factory worker, totally different kind of person comes. If I were to say a nurse, picture totally changes. An electrician, picture totally changes. The reality is in our culture, you are what you do. Now, we all know that uh, the picture that we have, when I said all of those things, you know, that's not, a, that's not a complete picture of a person. We all know that that's true. But in our culture, there is this link between our identity and what we do for a living, what we achieve. And, um, and it starts early. It starts super early. It starts with kids. Because what matters with kids is what grades are you getting? Right? Uh, are you in a sport, and do you start in that sport, or do you ride the bench? Do you have a lot of friends? Where are you going to go to college? How long did, you, did it take you to graduate college? What kind of job did you get? How much money do you make? How pretty is your wife? How well-behaved are your kids? What kind of house do you own? What's your 401k look like? Achieve, achieve, achieve. Because all of those things that you achieve define 
who you are. You are what you do. And we spend our whole life hearing those messages, and so we buy in to the lie that you are what you achieve. And that's, that's what we're going to do for the next three weeks. We're going to do a, a short little series for the next three weeks that we're calling lies. We're just going to call out three lies that we buy into that are that run absolutely antithetical to the way that, antithetical, is that a $2 word? Um, my wife always makes fun of me that I use words that nobody should actually use. Anyway, um, but, it, but we're going we're gonna to call out three lies that run against what Jesus, how Jesus lived. The first one that we're going to do is, is you are what you do. That's the first lie. Next week, um, Kellen is going to preach, and he's going he's gonna to talk about you are, the lie that you are what you show to the world. He's going to talk about reputation. He's going to talk about social media, all those kinds of things next week. And then the, the third week, and we're going to take a little bit of a right turn, and, we're gonna, and I'm going to come back and preach, and I'm going to talk about the lie that you are what's been done to you, or you are what other people say about you. And so don't miss the next three weeks as we hit these lies. Um, but, but today... Lie number one, you are what you do. And here's the truth. This, as a society, really works well. Here's what I mean. As an axiom for building a society together, it works really well because what it means, if we all buy into the lie that you are what you do, what it means is that you need to work really hard so you can earn lots of money and achieve a bunch of stuff so that you can spend that money and work hard again and achieve and earn and spend and work and achieve and earn and spend. And, and that's the, end, end, the engine that drives our economy. It works really, really well. The truth is, I am what I do. That lie is great for an economy and terrible for a person. Because we were never made, we were never designed to live like that. We were never designed to get our identity, to get our self-worth from what we do. And so when, when God decided to come to earth to show us how we're supposed to live in the form of Jesus, you, you read through the life of Jesus and you are convinced that Jesus refused to get caught up in the lie that you are what you achieve. And I want to jump into a story today at the very, very end of his ministry that I think is going is to get us to the place where we understand what Jesus thought of human achievement. Um, it, it, our, our story starts in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a, it's a really cool place. Um, I've actually been there, um, and, and I spent just maybe an hour at the foot of, a, of a, an olive tree. In, um, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I just had, it was just, you know, you have moments in your life where they're just like profound spiritual encounters. That was one for me. And so for me, when I read this story and I think about the Garden of Gethsemane, for me, the garden represents this sort of peaceful place. But the truth is, for Jesus, that's not what the Garden of Gethsemane was like. We, we find Jesus in the garden right before he's going to go to the cross. And he goes to the garden for a purpose. He goes to the garden in order to pray. 
And he goes to the garden in order to pray for another purpose, and that is to prepare his spirit and his mind for what's about to come. Jesus knows this is it. Judas is coming. Jesus knows that the last few days of his life are going to be spent in agony. And so he leaves his disciples on one end and he, he goes off to pray. And we have this amazing prayer that he prays in the, in the Gospel of John. And, and he, he, the, the Bible says that he sweat great drops of blood. I mean, this wasn't just like, now I lay me down to sleep kind of a prayer. This was agonizing. And, and at the crescendo of the prayer, he says, God, if there is any way that I don't have to go through this, please let this cup pass from me. But, not in my will, but your will be done. Maybe you've heard that before. And he gets up after this prayer, and he walks back to his disciples, and it's and he's exasperated. You know why? Because he see he knows what this moment is. He senses the importance of this moment, and he goes back to his disciples, and they are clueless because they are all dead asleep. They're like, what? And he and he wakes them up. What do you do? You guys even have a clue what's going on here? And in the middle of when he's tell when he's exasperated, telling them, guys, you don't know what's happening. Judas comes. That's where we pick up our story. Matthew chapter 26 says this, while Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived, and with him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer, Judas, had arranged a signal with them because the guys who were with him didn't know who Jesus was. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. And going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. I can't imagine what that must have been like for the disciples. Okay, here are guys who just gave three years of their life to this Jesus. I mean, they, not only that, but they, they believe in him. They get it. They know that he is the Messiah. They know that he is God in the flesh. They, they know that he has so much to accomplish. And I can't imagine the panic that these guys, Andrew and um, Thomas and, and uh, John and all the rest of these guys must have felt when, when this huge, massive crowd of people came to arrest Jesus. But then I wonder at the same time, I wonder if they thought, well, you know, the truth is Jesus has been here before. Did you know that? Before this, there was another mob who was out to get him. They actually were going to take him out to the, to the highest place and throw him off of a cliff. And miraculously, Jesus walked right through the crowd and got away. And so these guys might have been thinking, hey, you know, Jesus can take care of himself. You know, maybe he'll do something cool. Maybe he'll, like, turn all their swords into snakes or some Old testament thing, kind of like that. And then there was, a, there was this moment where they realized Jesus, Jesus wasn't going to get himself out of this. And, there, and, and in that moment, one of his companions, it turns out that that companion's name is Peter, 
he freaks out. When he realizes that Jesus is not going to get himself out of this, Peter freaks out. Let's keep reading. It says, Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. And with that, one of Jesus' companions, we know it's Peter from another gospel, reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. That's awesome. Um, Put your sword back in his place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I, listen, do you think I can't call my father? And he won't, like he, he picks up his cell phone. Um, no, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. I love Peter. Peter is awesome. Peter's a doer. He doesn't think, he just acts. You know, like you think you're going to take my Jesus? Think again. And he cuts a dude's ear off. Love that guy. And and so does Jesus. But he says, Peter, put your sword away. Calm down. In effect, he says, don't you think I can protect myself? Right? Do you not think? Come on, dude. And it's a little silly, isn't it? Here's, Here's Peter. What can Peter do that Jesus can't do? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, that's kind of silly, but i got to be honest with you. I see this all the time on social media. I see it all the time. People get on social media, and I'm, by people I mean us people. We get on social media and we get worried because we feel like God is under attack, Right? We feel like the the culture out there is attacking God. And so, what do we want to do? We want to defend God. We want to pull out our swords and defend God. And I wonder, I wonder, I wonder if God is saying, don't you think I can defend myself? Do you really think that God needs us on social media, out there with rants, trying to defend him? I, I honestly believe that Peter, when he pulls out that sword, I believe that he's worried about Jesus, but honestly, I I think he's just as worried about himself because he had given three years of his life to this. And what if he was wrong? What What if it all ends like this? I think that Peter was just as worried about himself as he was with Jesus, and I think the same can be true of you and me when we want to defend God. When we feel like our faith is under attack, we think, we, we like to think that we're defending God himself, but what we're really defending is our belief in God. Do you hear the difference? Our problem isn't that people are actually attacking God. Our problem is that it feels like they're attacking us. Sorry if I'm touching a little nerve for somebody. I would like to suggest that we all quit the rants on social media that are more about you and me being right than they are about defending God. God doesn't need us to defend him. Put your swords away. Worry less about fighting for truth and more about living for Jesus and his grace. Can I say that again? We have got to worry less about fighting for truth and worry more about living for Jesus and his grace because it is rarely 
a well-worded argument on social media that changes anybody's mind. The only way people's minds are changed about God and hearts are drawn to God is because someone who knows them and loves them lives like Jesus and shows them the grace that Jesus offers. Um, so what, it, what was it like that Jesus lived? What, what was the life like that Jesus lived? He, um, he started a religion, right? Uh, let's, so he must be like a really good religious leader. So let's take a look at, at what kind of a religious leader Jesus was, because this is the end of his ministry, right? We're in the story. At the very end, he's being arrested. He's going to be tried. He's going to go to the cross. So let's keep going. Right after Peter cut the guy's ear off, and, G, and, Peter sa- and Jesus said, don't worry, about, don't worry about it. Let him take me. He, here's what moves on. In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you didn't arrest me. But this has all taken place, that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Listen to this. Then all the disciples. How many of the disciples? All the disciples deserted him and fled. I want you to take stock of Jesus at this point. Jesus, this is God in the flesh. He came to earth and he spent three years in active ministry, building a ministry, and was an utter failure as a religious leader. He was arrested and when he was taken into custody, He only had one person who stuck up for him, and that one would deny knowing him three times by the end of the night. He had no money. He had no family. He had no land, no house. And now he had no followers and no friends, and he was giving up his life. By any human measure, Jesus was an utter failure at the end of his life. We just let that sink in. According to the rules of the world, Jesus was an utter failure. If Jesus had believed that his value was wrapped up in what he built in his life, in his accomplishments, then he would have been living in abject failure as he went to the cross. But Jesus never bought into the lie that you and I buy into. For him, it was never about achievement. He never believed that you are what you do or you are what you build. He always, no matter what, in his life, he always gave power away. He was never trying to achieve something. He was never trying to make something good for himself. He was never trying to make a name for himself. Who did he hang out with? The poor. The outcast. People who had nothing to offer him. Because Jesus knew this truth, that playing by the rules of the world 
will leave you feeling like an empty, dissatisfied failure. Buying into the lie every time will end up leaving you empty and dissatisfied. Jesus, uh, when, when his ministry started and people realized that he was the Messiah, they would say, hey, awesome, let's build up an army. Let's build, a, let's, let's start a rebellion. I mean, let's get out from under these Romans. And Jesus said, no, I don't think we're going to do that. And then there would be crowds that would gather. And by crowds, I mean like hundreds, even thousands of people who would come and hear him. And maybe, like, maybe his disciples were thinking, okay, things are clicking. You know, like we're building something here. And then he would get into this huge crowd and he would stand up and he would say something like, if you want to follow me, you have to hate your family. And everybody left. I, I wonder if there were some business gurus at the time, if they would have walked up to him and said, hey, um, you know, this whole healing thing, you could make some scratch off of that. You know, like... And I know it's kind of silly, it's stupid, but i got to be honest with you. If I could heal people, I'd be like, I could use a little something on the side for that. Jesus was never about himself. Never about getting anything or building anything. Jesus never bought into the lie that he should derive his identity from what he could do or achieve. And what would, that, what would if that's true, and Jesus is our model, If that's true, what would it look like right now for you and me to live a life that didn't buy into the lie that achievement gives me worth? Um, I think it starts by asking ourselves a, a fundamental question about identity. And the fundamental question is this. What makes you feel good about yourself? What, and what, what we're really getting down to in that fundamental question about identity is what, what makes you feel like you have worth in the world? And I, um, you know, so we, we ask this question, what, if, if, if that's the case, if that's the big question, what makes me feel like I have worth? I, I think for a lot of us, the stuff that comes up are all external. It's uh, I just had somebody come up to me after the first service. You know, what, what it is for me is what other people think about me. That's what makes me feel good about myself. When somebody feels, says something good about me. Uh, for some of us, it's, it is the achievement thing. If I am doing really well at work, feel really good about myself. If my family is, is taken care of, I feel, feel really good about myself. Um, the truth is... Uh, Life would be completely different if we could learn to look at our self-worth the way that Jesus looked at his, where achievement and external factors didn't have anything to do with how he felt about who he was. And so I think if we were going to do that, if you and I were going to figure out what that looked like here and now, I've been wrestling with that over the last couple of weeks, and i got three things I want to suggest would change if you and I were able to let go of this lie. Here's the first thing that, uh, that I think would change. Number one, who we spend our time with might change. Have you ever cozied up to somebody because you think they could do something for you? Have you ever, have you ever befriended someone in the hopes 
that they could help you out some, in some way, either at work or whatever. I, the whole, the, the entire culture of networking is this, right? It is, hey, I'm going to build relationships with people for the sake of the fact that they might be able to help me achieve what I want to achieve down the road. That's kind of the purpose of networking. And I'm not, I'm not saying that all networking is bad and like you should run away. I, all I'm saying is that networking, this desire to, to create relationships for, this, for a purpose is not a problem. It is a symptom of the problem that says that my life is wrapped up around my achievement. And so even my relationships are formed around my achievement. And so if we were to let go of that lie, the way Jesus let go, look at Jesus. Who did he hang out with? He didn't hang out with people who could get him ahead. If we were to let go of the lie, I think we would hang out with different people. That's the first one. The second thing that I think might change if we let go of the lie is that uh, how we talk to our kids would change. Now, um, I'm a dad. I got an 18-year-old and a 19-year-old, and I know there's a bunch of parents out here. Um, and everybody can listen in on this, but parents, we're going to have a little get-together here for just a second, okay? Here's what I know. Every one of us, if we sat in a circle and we went around the circle, we would all agree that it is way more important to raise good human beings than it is to raise geniuses or athletes. Am I right? That, that's not a hard question, right? The, the, the reality is um, that our, our reactions to our kids have a profound impact on how they develop this lie deep down in their gut. The way that we react to our children is a huge, makes a huge difference on whether they're going to buy in to the lie that they are what they achieve, that they only have value if they're producing something, or if they learn that they have value completely outside of that. And our the way that we react to our kids, I'm telling you, I'm not preaching at you, I'm preaching at us. Because this is me. Um, you and I, parents, we have got to be conscious of the signals we are sending to our children. I mean, we, we all know we want our kids to succeed, right? We want them to get good grades. We don't want to be them to be the screw-up in school. We want them to be in extracurricular activities. We want them to be well-rounded people. And so I'm not, I'm not preaching against any of those things. My kids were involved in a billion things, right? But um, here's what I got to say. Uh, we, we also know that our, uh, our kids are a reflection on us. We don't want them to be. And it's, it's kind of silly, that whole, like, you've, you've met people who, um, for whom their kids are like the vicarious life that they never had, and so they've decided that they want, they want you know, to live through the, their kids, whatever. I, and that's ridiculous. None of us would want to be that person. But here's the truth. On a smaller level, every single one of us is at least a little bit emotionally wrapped up in what our kids do or don't do, achieve or don't achieve, if we're being honest. Am I wrong? 
There's something in us. And here's the thing. There's no way around that. We love our kids. Of course we're wrapped up in it. We want our kids to be everything that they could possibly be. The problem is the more emotionally wrapped up we are in their achievement, in their doing, the more they know we are emotionally wrapped up in their achieving and their doing. And the more they know it, the more pressure they feel. And the more pressure they feel, they only have two options. They either rebel. Don't tell me what to do. How dare you? Don't, don't push me. Quit pushing me. And then they rebel in a lot of ways. That's one possibility. The other possibility, and I don't know which one's worse, they buy in. And they start to believe the lie that they only have value when they produce They only have value when they're good at something. They only have value when they achieve. And so we, as parents, we have so much power to either underline this lie and give it it breath in our kids to their detriment or to fight the lie for our kids. Um... So we ask ourselves the question, what, do, what makes me feel good about myself? And we're, we're asking that, and we'll come back to that. But the truth is, parents, you and I, we don't just need to ask it about ourselves. We need to ask it about our kids. What makes our kids feel valued? Do, do they feel valued only when they accomplish something? Or are you and I regularly telling them how great they are because of who they are, how God made them, and the fact that they are ours? Not that they're good. Are you helping your kids fight the lie? Or are you contributing to it? That might be a hard word for somebody today. Sorry. Um, that's the second thing. I think, uh, so if, we, if, we, if you and I were to let go of the lie that you are what you, ch- you achieve, First, who we spend time with would change. Secondly, how we talk to our kids would change. Um, and thirdly, who we think we are would change. See, there is a, an epidemic of low self-esteem. And part of it is because people have linked their identity with their goals. I am going to be a doctor. Somebody works hard their whole life, and they, and they know that they are going to be a doctor, and then they can't get into medical school. I'm going to be a wife and a mom. And you all of a sudden look up, and you're 40, and there are no prospects. The problem is, when we, when we link our identity to something like that, if you lose it, then you're lost. You don't just lose part of it. You don't just lose a thing that you had. You, you don't just lose the dream. If it becomes me, if, if becoming a doctor becomes part of who I am and I lose that, then I'm lost. Look at Jesus. He literally lost everything 
And in the middle of that, he knew who he was and what gave him worth. It wasn't a, and what gave him worth was not a number of followers. It wasn't a white picket fence and 2.5 kids. What gave him worth was the fact that his father once said, this is my son whom I love. In him I am well pleased. This happened at his baptism. Heaven opened and God himself spoke over Jesus. This is my son whom I love. In him I am well pleased. That is where Jesus found his worth. So what makes you feel good about yourself? i got to be honest what my trap is. Um, I, uh, I desperately want to create a great life for my family. And I don't just mean, I don't mean, it's really not about money. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, I'm talking about the fact that I love when my family, I've got two daughters and my wife, when the four of us are in a really good place. You know what I mean? Where it's peaceful at home, where we laugh together, where we care about each other, where we spend time together, and we want to spend time together. Honestly, right now, they're 18 and 19. They're both still at home. It is fantastic. My house is a wonderful place to be. And, the, and here's the thing. I love it. That's part, and I feel great that this is the life that I've built with my family, and I love it, but the problem is I actually love it a little too much because it becomes a part of who I think I am. And when it's going great, it's great, and I feel really good about myself, but there were junior high years. Do you know what I'm saying? Middle school years were terrible. They were rough. And it wasn't just rough because here we are, we're trying to figure out how to get through seventh grade with two girls, right? Uh, that's hard enough, but the problem was I had wrapped my identity around a wonderful, nice, easy life at home, which meant I felt like a failure at every moment for those years. Like an absolute, utter failure. And can I tell you how ridiculous that is? Here I am. I wrap my identity, I wrap my self-worth around the whims of two seventh grade girls. Could I be any stupider? But the truth is, it wasn't a choice. I, by default, I allowed my identity to be wrapped around, I allowed my self-worth to be wrapped around something that I didn't get to control and that was temporary and that was fleeting. Deriving your self-worth from your family or from any other person, including your husband, your wife, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, is just setting yourself up for failure. Every time. So what makes you feel good about yourself? Here is the very churchy truth. I can only find my true worth when I believe what God thinks of me. I know that's a super cheesy thing, churchy thing to say, but I'm telling you it is true. I only find my true worth when I believe what God thinks of me. Anything else is scary. If I find my true worth in being a mom, guess what? Kids grow up. 
If I find my worth, my self-worth in a job or in a business, guess what? Those are all temporary. If I find my self-worth in my ability to earn or my reputation in the community or literally anything else, it is scary because it's temporary. There is only one thing that is real and that is eternal that can hold our self-worth, and it is this. Jesus thinks enough of you that he gave his life for you. That's it. I know that sounds super cheesy, simple, but it is so, it's more true than anything that we can possibly believe. Your worth does not come from your achievement. It does not come because you're a good person. Your worth does not come because you're nice to people. You have worth because Jesus finds you full of worth. Enough that he gave his life for you. And so I want to do one last thing before I let you go. I'm going to let the band get up on the stage. Um, But I would like for everybody else to close your eyes right now. I want you to close your eyes because if, this is such an important truth that if we are ever going to let go of the lie that says we are what we achieve, we have got to let the truth of what God believes about us sink deeply into our souls. And so I don't pretend to speak for God, but I do believe, I, I just want to read something over you. And I want you to hear it as God speaking it directly into your spirit so you can hear what he thinks of you. Here it comes. I created you. I know the number of hairs you have on your head. I know what that thing that you said when you were a kid that you wish you could take back. And when you do something for somebody else and don't look for credit, I know all about it. I know you. I know your highest hopes. I know your darkest desires. But here's the most important thing. I don't just love you in spite of all that. I love you in the middle of all of that. I'm not upset with you. I'm not disappointed in you. I mean, we both know you're not perfect, but nobody is. So I just want you to know that I love you without condition, without restriction, without restraint. I love that you laugh at stupid stupid memes on the internet. I love that you hate the snow or that you love the snow. I just love you. Nothing, nothing in the world will ever change that. You could be the worst of the worst and I will still love you. Your family could turn their backs on you, but I will still love you. You could lose everything, just like I did, and I will always love you. You aren't valued because you're good. You're valued because you're mine. You are mine like Jesus was mine. And so I will speak the same words over you that I did over him on the day he was baptized. And I want you to hear them for you. Please don't miss the power that they bring. Here they come. You are my child. 
whom I love, with you I am well pleased. You are my child, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Don't believe the lie that you have to earn my love. You are my child, whom I love, with you. I am well pleased. You belong to me and I love you. Not because you're good or smart or hardworking. You belong to me because I made you and I love you right where you are. Thanks again for joining us on the Central and Janesville podcast. Remember to check us out at centraljanesville.com. Have a great week.